along with uh, 20 or so folks from this congregation, I've just returned from a pilgrimage in Israel-Palestine. We had a terrific experience. And by the way, we're tentatively scheduling our next one 18 months from now in May of 2019. If you've been around Christ Church for any amount of time, you know that I strongly encourage people to make this trek as an important component of their spiritual formation. It's especially important for American Christians. It really wakes up our faith and the knowledge of our faith. As I mentioned in a recent Faith Matters column, we fashion these journeys as spiritual adventures, not religious tourism. We still visit important sites that uh, inform our faith tradition, and these can be deeply stirring and also very challenging, too. But we embed this experience within current cultural arrangements, because otherwise our, our faith can seem a disembodied thing, separate from our actual lived experience, a kind of... Uh, Our faith can seem a kind of fantasy kingdom, as though fashioned by Disney Imagineers who have conjured a time long, long ago in a land far, far away. We need the regular reminder that Jesus walked a true human life within a specific cultural moment. The politics of his time were complicated, fractious, and divisive just like today. Jerusalem was a cosmopolitan nexus incubating powerful religious cross-currents, just like today. He advanced, Jesus advanced a simple but searing message of redemptive love for all, challenging the powers and principalities to a greater righteousness while eschewing political authority for himself. He was a highly original, disruptive figure calling people to follow humbly in his footsteps as he walked through the land, which is what we do when we are there. And ultimately, he was crucified through a political process as an enemy of the state. If we fail to make these connections, we'll fail to understand our place in our own specific cultural context right here. After all, we live in a highly complicated political religious culture that's extremely fractious and divisive. The tradition Jesus taught will not allow us an escape route from current conditions. Instead, we're flung headfirst into engagement with the powers and principalities in our own time and place, learning how to love God and our neighbors as ourselves. That's how Jesus explained the human project, after all, as you heard in the Gospel lesson. When a lawyer tried to entrap him, With the question pertaining to the greatest law, Jesus famously replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. When all is said and done, 
That was the point of it. Love. Love God, love your neighbors. All of them, by the way. Not some of them. Which was reminiscent of what he had declared in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm recalling that the pilgrims sat at the traditional place where the Sermon on the Mount was preached. It's likely not the exact spot, but it didn't matter. It was there by the side of the Galilee. And when you're actually sitting there and hearing words like this, it cuts deep. Remember how he said, To you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Give to everyone who asks. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies, do good to them, and then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Well, you know, friends, that's really radical stuff. But it's important we recognize that he said that in real time to real people in real difficult circumstance. And the passage we read today occurred on Monday of the last week of his life, shortly before he was condemned to death as an enemy of the state. I think we tend to hear words like this, these love your enemy and love uh, God above all things and so on. We sort of hear that in a, as though they're in a hermetically sealed bubble. Beautiful in their way and refreshingly idealistic, but, you know, not applicable in the real world. After all, how on earth is that supposed to be applied in our individual environments, at work, at home, on the street, and so on? On the one hand, I think we have an instinctual sense that love is the heart of the matter, but then, on the other hand, to actually apply it in real time seems so very difficult and actually quite threatening. When I did my doctoral research on forgiveness, which involved interviewing high-profile leaders, every single one of them said, after a while, as they got to thinking about it, that while forgiveness was essential to living well, even in the workplace, it was not possible to say that in their organizations because it would be perceived as weakness. Every single one of them said that unprompted. Forgiveness is a facet of love. To love seems to put one at a political disadvantage in a culture that generally rewards cutthroat, ruthless behaviors. Consider Jesus' fate. As a result, Christians tend to compartmentalize the concept as in, well, you know, I'll try to love my spouse and kids, but that's pretty much the beginning and end of it. And routinely fail to understand how love is related to justice and human dignity and equality. In this way, for 
several centuries. The church could tolerate slavery, for instance. All it took was a massive compartmentalization. That's all it took. But my point today isn't to carp about the church's failings and its call to love, but to simply reaffirm that call lies at the heart of what it means to be human in the highest and best sense. As you read on your bulletin cover this morning, Richard Rohr explains that the people who know God well, and I can vouch for this, this certainly rings true for me, the people who know God well, those who risk everything to find God, always meet a lover, not a dictator. God is never found to be an abusive father or a tyrannical mother, but always a lover who is more than we dared hope for. When Jesus claims that love of God is our first order of business and love of neighbor our second, he's stating the most elemental aspect of our existence. Everything else stands on that. Everything. And as I was thinking about that this week, given our current political environment, it's worth noting that Abraham Lincoln held to a similar viewpoint. He famously avoided joining any church in his day because he had difficulty giving his assent to complicated statements of doctrine, which seemed what church membership entailed, competing claims about correct doctrine. However, Lincoln was quoted as saying on more than one occasion, when any church will inscribe over its altar as its sole qualification for membership, the Savior's condensed statement of the substance of both the law and the gospel, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. That church will I join with all of my heart and soul. And as you have heard me, those of you that have been around a while, you've heard me say ad nauseum, that's the quote we have embedded in our mosaics above our altar and serves as the mission statement of Christ's church. It is not complicated. But man, oh man, is it hard. I think that's why we tend to put it in a hermetically sealed box so that safely ensconced we can go about our business. Again, consider Jesus. And you know, friends, this mission isn't owned by any particular denomination or religion for that matter. As it is, Jesus quoted Hebrew scripture when he pronounced his answer to the scheming lawyer. He was just quoting Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You know, on our trip to Palestine and Israel, we met loving Jews and loving Muslims and loving Christians. We don't have a corner on it. 
Peel away the doctrinal layers of all the world's great religions and you will find a variation of this love at their core. Why? Because it reflects creation energy. The realization that everything that is has come to us as gift. That God is a lover and we are meant to be lovers as well. And on this point, some years ago, I watched an interview with Richard Dawkins on British television. Dawkins is that famous atheist biologist who's written several aggressive anti-religious diatribes. The interviewer was clearly of like mind, and his questions were served as lightly tossed softballs that Dawkins could smash out of the religious ballpark. But at the end, the interviewer sucked in a deep breath and he said something like this. I don't remember it exactly, but it was something like this. Well then, Dr. Dawkins, here at the end, when all is said and done, what really matters about life? What's it all about anyway? And without skipping a beat... Dawkins gave a most remarkable, nearly unbelievable answer, at least in terms of his own logic system. He said something like, Oh, well, you know, it's actually quite easy. Very easy. Love. It's all about love. That's the heart of the matter. That's what it all boils down to, love. And I nearly fell out of my seat... Because everything that preceded this last comment could hardly logically lead to this conclusion. In other words, why should love be privileged above every other evolutionary system? Why not hate or dominance or something else reflective of survival of the fittest? But if love is Dawkins' answer, here's the incredible thing. We have something to talk about that points to the fundamental religious principle that Jesus enunciated. Evidently, Dawkins cannot escape the elemental instinct about what matters most. And here's the irony. 1 John 4, 8 says explicitly, God is love. And you know, friends, that's about as good a place to end as I can fashion. <laughs>